This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Welcome to Trumpet Hour. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, and we appreciate you spending some of your time with us today. Well, the ruling party in the nation of Zimbabwe has rigged another election, and it's really going beyond that, normalizing election steals so that the people of the nation will soon know only the ruling party. There are sobering lessons that the democracies and republics of the world should draw from this, as we'll hear in a report from trumpet writer and Zimbabwean national Rafaro Manyepa. For our second segment, we'll take a look at the city of Tyre. This is an ancient city with millennia of history, and it also features prominently in the Bible, with some sobering forecasts issued for it in the book of Ezekiel. We'll hear about how this prophecy may be intersecting with archaeology in a report from trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic. Our third segment will examine BRICS. This is a grouping of nations that are dead set on closing the curtain on the U.S.-dominated economic order, and their numbers are dramatically growing. BRICS itself may not be able to topple the greenback, But the very fact of its formation and rapid expansion show the growing determination among many nations to weaken America. And this organization might pave the way for more serious anti-U.S. alliances to form in the future, as we'll hear in a report from trumpet writer Peter Van Halteren. And our last word today is about some of the Bible's psalms that appear at first glance to be anonymous or of unknown author, but with a closer look we see that that's not the case. So that'll be at the end of the program, and we'll begin now with a look at Zimbabwe's elections and the anatomy of a steel in this report from Rafaro Manyapa. Five years ago, on August 31st, 2018, the Zimbabwe presidential election results were announced as I drove into the city. Emerson Munangagwa of the ZANU-PF party had won the presidency, And to most Zimbabweans, this meant that they had stolen the election. There was chatter about a protest being organized by the opposition. That didn't mean much to me. I would be leaving Zimbabwe for America the very next day. I was headed into the city to collect my dry cleaning. As I exited the dry cleaners with my clothes, I noticed a soldier standing right outside the building holding an AK-47. He hadn't been there when I went in, and he looked pretty menacing. He blocked my path, and he told me to go down the street the other way, opposite the way that I intended. I was confused, but I complied. And as I reached the end of the block, several things happened at once. Someone knocked into me and continued to sprint past as hundreds more trailed behind him. I heard screaming and shouting. My eyes began to sting and water. Smoke and gunshots filled the air. I realized what was happening right as I saw a body drop right next to me. A fellow Zimbabwean shot dead. The protests had happened after all. The military had been deployed and was using bullets and tear gas to quash them. And I was right there in the middle of it all. 
by force, the election steal that had happened was secured. Last month, on August 23, election day came once again in Zimbabwe. The polling stations were supposed to open by 7 a.m. Zimbabweans were queued up. They were ready to vote. It had been five years since the last presidential election. They were ready and eager to cast their ballots. The problem was there wasn't any ballot paper. 7 a.m. came and went, and only 23% of the polling stations in Harare, the capital city, opened on time. The Zimbabwe Electoral Commission blamed court delays. The commission had had five years to prepare for the election. They were actively involved in preparations for the last three months, and when the time finally came, the ballot papers were missing in urban areas primarily, the opposition party strongholds. To even the most casual observer, this was a highly suspicious irregularity, but it wasn't the only one. The constitution was amended to allow vote counting to take up to five days instead of one. The late arrival of ballot paper meant over 40 wards across Harare, the capital city, started casting and counting ballots in the middle of the night. Nomination fees for candidates were raised from $1,000 to $20,000. Undercover police disrupted opposition member rallies and intimidated voters, while some journalists covering polling stations were sent away by the police. Voters were largely unmoved. There were many Zimbabweans who were interviewed and, and told reporters, we're not going anywhere. This is what we came for. We've waited for five years, so we're patient enough. We will sleep here if we have to. Many, in fact, did. This bullish attitude encapsulated the mindset of the average voter. By now, most Zimbabweans knew that ZANU-PF, the party of Robert Mugabe and Emerson Mnangagwa, has been rigging elections for the last three decades. But this time felt different. Voters refused to be disheartened by all the underhanded tactics. Many built bonfires outside polling stations, staying warm, having parties, waiting for the chance to vote. And the early reports were promising. Yet on August 26, the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission and the national media announced that Mnangagwa and ZANU-PF won the election. Election observers from the European Union and across Africa found that some aspects, quote, fell short of the requirements of the principles of free and fair elections, and that if the process is flawed, then the result cannot be legitimate, unquote. ZANU-PF systematically disrupted ballot distribution, intimidated voters, waved away the press, and tried to ban candidates from achieving nomination. They won not despite all of that, but because of it. Now that's not to say that nobody voted for ZANU-PF. Though most of the country is frustrated by high inflation, unemployment, and the shortage of basic goods and services, some credit the ruling party with achieving land reform and bringing independence. And so they do vote for ZANU-PF. But there aren't enough of them to bring ZANU-PF to power 
without them having to rig the election. Zimbabwe is a very young country. Formerly Rhodesia, Zimbabwe was born in 1980 after years of guerrilla warfare in a bid for independence. The black majority finally allowed to vote overwhelmingly supported Mugabe's ZANU-PF party. And things went well in the beginning. Zimbabwe was riding the wave of Rhodesia's superlative economic prosperity. But a few years in, the progress slowed. And soon enough, the country began to regress. Political violence, corruption, disastrous economic policies, poverty and rampant disease became the new normal. Somehow, ZANU-PF continued to win elections. Whispers of fraud and election fixing were silenced by waves of brutality, not unlike the very kind that I experienced firsthand. Meanwhile, with each passing election, the ruling party continued to perfect the mechanisms to rig elections. And here we are 43 years later, and ZANU-PF is still the only ruling political party Zimbabweans have ever known. On August 23, Zimbabweans took to the polls to vote, once again hoping for change. And the initial reports sounded positive, but that hope quickly turned to ash. Manangagwa won the presidency, and heavy quotes on the word won, with over 52% of the vote. And it's hard to believe that ZANU-PF will ever relinquish power. They have mastered the art of the elections deal. They started stealing elections long ago, but there was just enough doubt and skepticism to prevent Zimbabweans from doing anything about it. And now it's too late. Perhaps Zimbabwe's first ever election was its only legitimate one. Maybe the second one was legitimate too. But Zimbabweans have never really known free and fair elections. They've never really known freedom. And that's why... They can't fight against the election steal. It's why there are rigged elections in many third world countries. And that's specifically what makes America different. The radical left here in America is attempting to institutionalize the election steal. It wants to make that the new normal. It wants to systematically disrupt ballot distribution, intimidate voters, wave away the press, and try to ban candidates from achieving nomination. It wants that to be the new normal. But there are people who know better. There are people who know America's history, who know their freedoms. They know the vision the Founding Fathers had for this country. The Constitution that they drafted the system of government that they put in place. Here in America, there are people like Benjamin Franklin who knew that the United States is, quote, a republic if you can keep it, quote. The radical left wants to do in America what ZANU-PF did in Zimbabwe. Normalize the election steal so that Americans never know any other ruling party. But here there are people who know that to keep this republic, they have to fight against the forces trying to take over their country. It's impossible to 
accidentally stop an election steal. It will only happen if people like Donald Trump are ready for war. is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. This is Trumpet Hour here on KPCG 101.3 FM. Thank you again for joining us on the show today. Next up, we take a look at the ancient city of Tyre, where archaeology may be uncovering some stunning intersections between history and prophecy. For this, we'll go to trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic. The Phoenician city-state of Tyre was a wonder of the ancient world. It controlled a shipping empire from the eastern Mediterranean to Europe's Atlantic coast. The Bible describes Tyre's reputation of quality craftsmanship to be so highly valued that King Solomon used Tyrian laborers for construction of Jerusalem's temple. The 5th century BCE Greek historian Herodotus in his histories described Tyre as a city of lavishly decorated public buildings. Tyre was, as the late theologian Herbert W. Armstrong wrote in Mystery of the Ages, the commercial metropolis of the ancient world, even as Babylon was the political capital. Tyre, Mr. Armstrong wrote, was the New York, the London, the Tokyo, or the Paris of the ancient world. The ancient Tyre, port of the world's shippers and merchants, glorified herself in her beauty, even as Paris in our time. Yet something stands out compared to the other great cities of antiquity regarding Tyre. Other famed ancient cities like Jerusalem, Athens, Rome, and many a site in Egypt have grand monuments from the city's golden ages still standing. This is not the case with modern Tyre in what is today the coast of Lebanon. Hardly anything from Tyre's heyday is visible from above ground. There are a handful of relatively impressive remains dating from the Roman period, but little to nothing from Tyre's Phoenician heritage. There are certain reasons for this. The disruption of later civilizations plus the proximity of a modern city make excavating Tyre challenging. But there are other reasons, reasons that are revealed in the Bible. The Bible doesn't just have plenty to say about archaeological finds in certain places, but also why in certain areas we have a lack of them. Tyre is one of these areas. The Phoenicians feature prominently in the biblical narrative. They are listed in the book of Judges among the Canaanite tribes the Israelites did not conquer. As the books of Samuel and Chronicles bring out, Tyre's king Hiram was a powerful ruler who allied himself with David and Solomon. But for our purposes, the pertinent biblical passage is Ezekiel 26. The context of the passage is King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon conquering the land of Judah. The wars with Babylon lasted between 605 to 585 BCE when Jerusalem was finally conquered. Now, the prophet Ezekiel took great pains to timestamp his prophecies, beginning with his entry into Babylonian captivity in around 597 BCE. 
Ezekiel 26 verse 1 shows that Ezekiel's vision dates to the 11th year of Ezekiel's captivity. And depending on the chronological model used, scholars place Ezekiel's prophecy between 587 and 586 BCE, although it could even be as late as 585. In any case, Ezekiel gave his prophecy in the final years of Judah existing as an independent kingdom. Here is a section from that prophecy from Ezekiel chapter 26, verses 1 to 5. And it came to pass in the eleventh year, in the first day of the month, that the word of the Eternal came unto me, saying, Son of man, because that Tyre has said against Jerusalem, Aha, she is broken, that was the gate of the peoples, she is turned unto me, I shall be filled with her that is laid waste. Therefore, thus says the Lord Eternal, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will cause many nations to come up against you, as the sea causes its waves to come up, and they shall destroy the walls of Tyre, and break down her towers. I will also scrape her dust from her, and make her a bare rock. She shall be a place for the spreading of nets in the midst of the sea. For I have spoken it, says the Lord Eternal, and she shall become a spoil to the nations." That was a slightly paraphrased version from the Jewish Publication Society translation. The rest of the prophecy goes on to specify that God would bring Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, against Tyre, and that he would be the one to make forts against Tyre and cast them out against Tyre and put battering engines and, with his axes, break down Tyre's walls and spoil her riches. But to summarize some of the details of the prophecy of Tyre's downfall, we could learn from Ezekiel's account that 1. Tyre's destruction would be at the hands of many nations. 2. One invader singled out is Nebuchadnezzar. 3. Tyre's destruction would be thorough. And 4. Tyre's fate would be to be covered in water. Tyre is not the only major city of the ancient world to receive this kind of cursing in the Bible. Prophecies of Jerusalem's fall to the Babylonians are numerous and well corroborated with archaeology, and so are the prophesied falls of cities like Nineveh and Babylon. But what about Tyre? Now, because of Lebanon's precarious security situation, little archaeological work has been done in Tyre, but even though we may not have as many material sources, as many artifacts per se, compared to some of these other places to learn about Tyre's ancient history, we can fill in the gaps through ancient textual sources. First century CE, Jewish historian Josephus wrote in The Antiquities of the Jews, citing earlier historians that Nebuchadnezzar's siege of Tyre lasted 13 years. Now, depending on when people date Ezekiel's prophecy to be given, when they date the start of the siege, and how different evidence from Ezekiel's book factors in, it's not exactly known when this 13-year period would have been, or even how accurate that number 13 is. There is other evidence suggesting that the siege could have ended around 570 BCE. But regardless, it still shows that the conquest of Tyre took place, or at least was finished, well after the capture of Jerusalem in 585 and Jerusalem, of course, being much further down south from Tyre, further away from Babylon. So that Nebuchadnezzar would be struggling so long to capture Tyre, even as the rest of the region 
was under his thumb shows how stubborn the city was. So why did Tyre take such a long time to conquer? The answer is in the city's geography. Ancient Tyre was actually two cities in one. One half of the city was located on the mainland, but the other half was across the sea on a small island. In a sense, Tyre was, as Ezekiel 28 verse 1 puts it, in the midst of the seas or in the heart of the seas. Historians suspect the mainland city fell to Nebuchadnezzar with a little fight, but with their formidable navy, island Tyre was able to hold the Babylonians off long enough. Now, Tyre is listed as a client state of Babylon in records like the Hof Calendar Prism, which is a text that's currently in the Istanbul Archaeological Museums in Turkey. So Tyre did eventually fall to Nebuchadnezzar. We have the biblical proof and we have secular proof for that as well. But with one half of the city still standing, Tyre's state could hardly be called made as a bare rock. Herodotus, when he visited Tyre during the time of the Persian Empire, was told by the Tyrans that their temple to the god Melkart was founded thousands of years from their time, with apparently all of its treasures intact. Ezekiel was a contemporary to both the start and conclusion of Nebuchadnezzar's siege. He would have known that the island city of Tyre was still standing. So in his prophecy, what was he referring to? Well, in his prophecy, Ezekiel specifically mentioned Nebuchadnezzar by name as one of the conquerors. But he also said that many nations would go up against Tyre, as the sea causes waves to come up. So in other words, Tyre would be invaded wave after wave by multiple invaders. After Babylon, the Persians were the ones to establish dominion in the area. They conquered Babylon and its empire in the year 539 BCE. This would have been the Tyre of Herodotus' day. Tyre was still standing erect back then, but it wouldn't be the Persians to scrape Tyre as a rock. That would be up to the empire following the Persians. Alexander the Great and the Greeks. Alexander invaded the Persian Empire in 334 BCE. Crossing over into Asia, Alexander's armies famously routed the Persians unbelievably fast with decisive victories at the Battle of the Granicus River in modern Turkey and the Battle of Issus in modern Syria. Much of the Levant, including modern Lebanon, was under Alexander's control pretty fast. But Maritime Tyre, the island city of Tyre, was still independent. And according to the 1st century CE Roman historian Quintus Curtius Rufus, Tyre still surpassed all other cities of Syria and Phoenicia in size and renown. You can read that in his History of Alexander. Tyre's main god, Melkart, was synchronized by the Greeks with the uh, hero-slash-deity Heracles. Alexander's dynasty believed themselves to be descended from Heracles, and instead of attacking Tyre at first, Alexander instead wanted to visit the city to sacrifice at its temple of Melkart. The Tyrians rejected Alexander's offer, stating there was a temple to Melkart on the mainland Alexander could sacrifice to instead. Now, Alexander later sent envoys to speak with the Tyrians, and the Tyrians, in a massive diplomatic insult, murdered them. According to Rufus, quote, the Tyrians had sufficient confidence in their position to decide to withstand a siege. The strait separating the city from the mainland had a width of four stades, or roughly half a mile. 
it was particularly exposed to the southwesterly wind, which rolled rapid successions of waves onto the shore from the open sea, and nothing represented a greater obstacle to a siege work than this wind, end quote. The Tyrians must have seen the choppy sea land wave after wave on its shores and felt this was protection enough from Alexander. But, had they been mindful of Ezekiel's prophecy, they would have known those same waves were symbols of Tyre's doom. Alexander was ambitious. He instructed his engineers to construct a mole or an artificial causeway into the sea, from the mainland to the island, creating a land bridge for his troops. But where was he to find the material to construct this bridge? The Greek historian Diodorus of Sicily from the 1st century BCE wrote in his historical library, quote, Immediately he demolished what was called Old Tyre, or Mainland Tyre, and set many tens of thousands of men to work, carrying stones to construct his mole, end quote. In other words, Alexander tore down the mainland city, scraping it bare as a rock, if you will, to build his land bridge. The siege took seven months to complete. The sea was mostly shallow enough for the mole to be constructed, but it dropped sharply closer to the island at roughly 18 feet. The Tyrians, meanwhile, harassed the Greeks with their navy, as well as attacks from the island city itself. But in July of 332 BCE, the city was finally breached. Alexander was able to finally sacrifice to Melkart as he intended. But what else did he do? The 2nd century CE Greek historian Arian wrote in his Anabasis, quote, There was large-scale slaughter. Now that the force invading the harbor had gained control of the city, the Macedonians stopped at nothing in their fury— They were angered by the wearisome length of the siege and by the action of the Tyrians. The Tyrian dead numbered some 8,000. Further down, he writes that aside from some seeking asylum in Melkart's temple, Alexander enslaved the rest, and a total of about 30,000 Tyrians and foreigners caught inside the city were sold into slavery, end quote. Rufus, meanwhile wrote that Alexander also set the city on fire. It is Alexander's siege that arguably did the most damage to Tyre, and it is Alexander's legacy that lasted the longest in Tyre. No longer two cities separated by a maritime strait, the former island had been since perpetually connected to the mainland by Alexander's mole and the land that formed on top of it, and to this day, satellite images can clearly show the land bridge that was built upon Alexander's mole. Tyre was yet to see the end of war. After Alexander died in 323 BCE, his young empire was split up between his competing generals. This included the kings that ruled Macedon, Egypt, and Mesopotamia, known as the Seleucids. In the chaos of the 2nd century BCE between the Seleucids and the rapidly rising Roman Republic, Tyre was able to gain independence in the year 126. But even though Tyre had independence, the constant warfare in the eastern Mediterranean hampered the trade routes that made Tyre such an important city in the first place. Rome finally annexed Tyre in the year 64 BCE. And to this day, it is the Roman ruins, at least on land, that are among the earliest major remains that tourists, when they visit Tyre today, can see. 
This includes a hippodrome or a chariot racetrack that dates from the 2nd century CE. So, Tyre was fought over and destroyed by many nations, coming in wave after wave. Alexander the Great made the city bare as a rock. But the Roman ruins show the city was rebuilt. There is a modern city on Tyre right now. Ezekiel, meanwhile, wrote that Tyre would be built no more, as it says in chapter 26, verse 14. Speculation abounds as to Ezekiel's meaning. It could be like much of the major prophets. Ezekiel was speaking about an end-time fulfillment of a destruction of a prophetic type of Tyre. This, of course, would not have happened yet, but there could be another meaning as well. In the 12th century CE, a Jewish traveler from Spain named Benjamin of Tudela wrote a journal of his travels through Asia. Among the places he visited, he wrote about a city called New Tyre, which has, according to his words, a very fine city with a harbor in its midst. Benjamin wrote, quote, A man can ascend the walls of New Tyre and see ancient Tyre, which the sea has now covered, lying at a stone's throw from the new city. And should one care to go forth by boat, one can see the castles, marketplaces, streets, and palaces in the bed of the sea. Part of old Tyre, the Roman port, is still above water. But Tyre has had its fair share of earthquakes, erosion, and other events changing its geography. Much of ancient Tyre is today submerged underwater, in the midst of the waters. These ruins include remains archaeologists have dated all the way back to the Iron and even Bronze Ages. In other words, the remains date to roughly the time of Ezekiel and even hundreds of years before that. And these include the remains of Tyre's ancient harbor. Tyre is mentioned prominently in the Bible from the first five books of Moses to the Persian period, even into the New Testament. Yet unlike many other great cities of the Bible, very little from the biblical period, or at least the period of the Hebrew Bible, has been unearthed. Ezekiel's writings explain why. Underwater archaeology is still a relatively recent field, and the seas around Tyre may still hold some discoveries from the biblical period waiting for us to find. But, even so, the dearth of biblical remains themselves are an even better testament to the scriptures. Many scholars of biblical archaeology have little problem accepting the Bible's account when it comes to, say, kings and generals, secular, or relatively speaking, secular leaders. More and more scholars are accepting that figures like Joshua, David, and Solomon were real people. But the prophets are a different matter. The vivid dreams and visions of men like Ezekiel and Daniel are often considered too far out there for their works to have any historical value. The history of places like Tyre show the contrary. Not only was Ezekiel's record of Tyre accurate, but its accuracy has been demonstrated for hundreds of years. Ezekiel may have called Tyre an enemy of Judah in his writings, but in poetic irony, Tyre's history to this day is one giant gift to the Jews, a testimony of the accuracy of their scriptures.
This is Trumpet Hour. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. This is Jeremiah Jacques. For our next segment, we take a look at the burning rage that many nations have regarding America's economic dominance and the status of the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency. Many of these nations are now banding together, trying to engineer methods to topple the dollar from its perch with the clear hope that the United States as a whole may follow after. We'll learn about this in this report from trumpet writer Peter Van Halteren. As the American economy struggles and Western sanctions cause economic trouble in revisionist countries, some nations are looking to break away from the global financial system led by the United States. The BRICS nations, consisting of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, recently gained a lot of attention by inviting six developing economies to join the bloc. Iran, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, the United Arab Emirates, Ethiopia, and Argentina. The bloc now represents a stunning 42% of the world's population and 36% of global gross domestic product. Will BRICS provide a new financial system that U.S. rivals are so desperately waiting for? After Western sanctions hit Russia over the invasion of Ukraine, BRICS nations intensified discussions about creating a new financial system that wouldn't be at the mercy of dollar-based sanctions. Since then, global efforts to ditch the US dollar have increased. On his trip to China in April this year, Brazilian President Lula called on the BRICS nations to work toward replacing the US dollar with their own currency in international trade. Russia had already shifted to increased trading with China and Yuan. And in the same month, the use of the Chinese Yuan overtook the US dollar in China's cross-border transactions for the first time. India also adopted a new foreign policy to push for its international trade to be in Indian rupees rather than dollars. And then early in the year, Saudi Arabia, the world's largest crude oil exporter, had opened itself to oil trade in currencies other than the US dollar. Saudi Arabia is the largest oil exporter in the world. Now, it will also be part of BRICS together with other oil exporters such as Iran and the United Arab Emirates. The previously indestructible petrodollar could now be under threat. Along with the trend to ditch the dollars for one's own currency, BRICS nations are also discussing methods to create a new currency altogether. During the 14th BRICS summit in 2022, Russian President Vladimir Putin said the BRICS nations plan to create a new global reserve currency and are open to trading it with all fair partners. Russian lawmaker Alexander Babakov said, quote, the transition to settlements in national currencies is the first step. The next one is to provide the circulation of digital or any other form of a fundamentally new currency in the nearest future, unquote. Melissa Pastilli is a reporter for Investing News Network, and she wrote about the possibility of a new BRICS currency. She said, quote, If a new BRICS currency was to stabilize against the dollar, it could weaken the power of U.S. sanctions, leading to a further decline in the dollar's value. It could also cause an economic crisis, affecting American households. Aside from that, this new currency could accelerate the trend towards de-dollarization, unquote. The question remains, is it even possible for a new BRICS currency to compete with the U.S. dollar? The vast size of the American economy, the power of U.S. markets, and the momentum of decades-old global finance practices mean that the dollar will be very difficult to replace. According to the Bank of New York Mellon, 
the dollar is unlikely to lose its status as global reserve currency anytime soon. The dollar is used in over 74% of all international trade, almost 90% of currency exchanges, and nearly 100% of oil trades. Currencies such as the Chinese Yuan are heavily manipulated and therefore cannot gain enough international confidence to challenge the dollar. And while the notion of a new BRICS currency may sound good, nations in the BRICS group have such vastly different political systems, very different geopolitical goals and deep rivalries among each other. Because of that, it would be very difficult to establish a trustworthy common currency. However, even if BRICS doesn't succeed in overthrowing American economic supremacy, its formation and its expansion show the growing determination among many nations to weaken America. And this BRICS organization might pave the way for more serious global anti-American alliances to form in the future. The Trump has been warning for years that Asian nations will work together with others to break away from the world financial system dominated by America. And this is because of the sure word of Bible prophecy. In Luke 21, verse 24, Jesus Christ prophesied of a global era called the times of the Gentiles. Trumpet editor-in-chief Mr. Gerald Fleury has explained that the Gentiles are non-Israelite people. In end-time prophecy, Israel refers to modern-day America and Britain. And for proof of that, you can order a free copy of United States and Britain in prophecy. Britain and America have long brought stability to the world. But during these times of the Gentiles, the non-Israelite people will start to take charge of the world. And we can see that happening right now before our eyes as China and Russia become increasingly powerful. In the 2023 August 11th episode of The Key of David, a TV program by Mr. Fleury, he said the following, quote, We're certainly deep into the times of the Gentiles already. You can see it happening out there. You can see it if you know anything about world news. You can see it all happening right before your eyes, unquote. As Trump editor-in-chief Mr. Fleury has explained, during these times of the Gentiles, America and Britain will lose power to two major blocks of Gentile nations. Now, the first of these blocks will revolve around Russia and China. But these Asian giants, even though they have been growing more powerful economically, they will not be able to really threaten financial dominance by America across the globe. To really besiege America economically, these Gentile nations will soon receive support from a second major bloc. And as prophecy shows, that is Europe. In Isaiah 23, the Bible prophesies of a mart of nations. This is an economic alliance between Asian and European nations led by Germany that will work to freeze the US out of world trade. Mr. Fleury explains many details of these prophecies in his free book, Isaiah's End Time Vision. He explains the modern meaning of words such as Tyre, Chittim, Tarshish, and other terms that are used in that prophecy. The overall picture shows that even though modern efforts by Asians and other BRIC nations may help to challenge dollar dominance, ultimately it will be Europe joining in the fight that leads this mart of nations and that creates economic independence. From America. In 2016, Germany and several other European nations made the decision to join China's Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Mr. Fleury wrote about this, saying it is a major step in building this mart of nations. He wrote, quote, 
Germany has already joined the China-led Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Financial analysts like Jim Willey are warning that Germany may already be planning to ditch the dollar and join the BRICS nations. The relationship we see developing between the King of the North and the Kings of the East is exactly what Isaiah prophesied over 2,700 years ago. Later on, he writes, The United States and Britain are going to be left out in the cold as two gigantic trade blocks, Europe and Asia, mesh together and begin calling the shots in world commerce. These nations of Israel are going to be literally besieged, economically frozen out of world trade, unquote. The BRICS alliance already shows a common hatred for America's dominance across the globe. And BRICS could very well be a forerunner of alliances that will ultimately form the Mart of Nations and cause the economic besiegement of America. However, besides just prophesying of the economic besiegement of the United States by these two powerful trading blocks, the Bible also proclaims a message of tremendous hope. In Mr. Fleury's book, Isaiah's End Time Vision, he writes about the trade alliance between Asia and Europe. Quote, that trading partnership won't last long. Soon they will clash just before Jesus Christ returns and destroys both of them, unquote. Prophecy shows that Jesus Christ will soon return to this earth and put an end to man's flawed economies establishing a government that leads to peace and prosperity for all mankind. That is the ultimate solution to all men's problems. To fully understand how these alarming geopolitical trends tie into this hopeful message prophesied in the Bible, order your free copy of Mr. Fleury's book, Isaiah's End Time Vision. It's time for today's Last Word. If you've followed the publications associated with Trumpet Hour in recent months, then you may have noticed that there's been some emphasis recently placed on the Psalms of David. Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry has been calling attention to these Davidic Psalms and explaining just how much spiritual value there is in digging into them and studying them as a cohesive collection. Now, if you look at the book of Psalms in the Bible, there are 150 Psalms there, and if you examine each one, you'll count 73 of them that are attributed to King David. Up at the top of each of those, in verse 0, you could call it, it says a Psalm of David, or a Mictum of David, or something along those lines. So with those 73 Psalms, we can be sure that David was the one who was inspired to write them. Now, if you look at Psalm 2, you will not see David's name at the top of the text or anywhere else. So it looks to be anonymous or of an unknown author. If you only considered the book of Psalms, you would have to think that Psalm 2 either was not one that King David wrote or that it's impossible to know for sure whether he did or didn't write it. But if you dig into the Bible a little bit more and broaden your study beyond the Psalms, and beyond the Old Testament altogether, then you'll discover something fascinating about Psalm 2. So this psalm would have been written sometime around 1000 BC, about a thousand years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And then shortly after Christ's death, 
the Apostle Paul was inspired to quote this psalm. This is recorded in the New Testament in Acts 4. Here, Paul quotes a sentence that is clearly from Psalm 2. It says, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? End quote. So that in and of itself is nothing unusual. New Testament figures such as the Apostle Paul very often quoted the Psalms and other parts of the Old Testament. So Paul quoting the Psalm here is not necessarily unusual. But what is fascinating is that when Paul quotes this psalm, this psalm that records no author back in the Old Testament, he was inspired to reveal who the author was. Paul says these words in Psalm 2 were written by King David. The full text of Paul's words recorded in Acts 4, 25 says, Who by the mouth of your servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? So there it is. If you just read the Old Testament, you wouldn't be able to say for sure who wrote this psalm. But since God inspired Paul to reveal the author about a thousand years later, and since Luke recorded that in the book of Acts, then we can know that Psalm 2 is another one of David's. And then there's a similar situation with Psalm 95. If you just look at verse 0 of that one, the heading text in the book of Psalms, then you may think that its authorship can't be determined. But if you deepen your study and broaden your examination of this psalm, then you'll see that the Apostle Paul also wrote about this one, this time in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 4, 7 shows Paul quoting Psalm 95. He writes, Again, he limits a certain day, saying in David... Today, after so long a time, as it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. So here again, Paul clearly attributes this otherwise anonymous psalm to King David. And both Psalm 2 and Psalm 95 are rich with eloquence and all kinds of spiritual insights and just very profound, you know, edification and inspiration. So it's exciting to be able to put a name on them and to learn more about David, who was a man after God's own heart, through them. So this is, I think, just an exciting instance of the Bible really rewarding those who dig into its pages and mine its depths. Sometimes it is here a little, there a little, and being able to connect the dots can enhance your study and understanding a great deal. Before we wrap the show up here, I wanted to quickly mention something about one of the other Psalms. This is Psalm 104, the way it's numbered in the King James Bible. Bless the Lord, eternal, O my soul, is how it begins. And the German writer, Johann Gottfried Herder, spent apparently a considerable part of his life studying this psalm. And at one point he wrote, It is worth studying the Hebrew language for ten years in order to read Psalm 104 in the original. So that's a stunning endorsement there from a man who studied Psalm 104 and many of the other psalms and who even learned Hebrew so that he'd be able to read them as they were originally written. It's worth 10 years of language study, Mr. Herder said, to be able to take it in without it having been filtered through any translation. That's what he says about Psalm 104. I'm not able to read this psalm in the original Hebrew, but even just the translations the English translations of it show how 
illuminating and just truly special this psalm is. And it's just one other indication of the wealth of poetry and spiritual profundity that is at the heart of the psalms. Well, we are now coming to the end of Trumpet Hour. Please check out our show notes for today's episode on SoundCloud or on thetrumpet.com to find links to the articles that today's reports were based on. That's at thetrumpet.com. Also, you can email us any comments you may have about today's episode. The address is letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks very much to my guests, Rafaro Manyepa, Mihailo Zekic, and Peter Van Halteren. Thanks also to Isaac Lorenz and Nicholas Irwin for taking care of the audio work for this episode. And thanks very much to each of you for listening to today's show. Until next time, keep watching your world. <laughs>